Okay, well, let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you uh, that we have uh, the opportunity to hear what you have to say. Not in any way am I indicating that I'm the only one who can speak for you, but I believe your word speaks for itself. And so tonight we choose to hear what you have to say from your word. I pray that you help me uh, be mindful of you, Holy Spirit, that I say what you say. And I, I want to do that to the very best of my ability. Father, we give you praise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me just say this before I start tonight. When I grew up, my sister and I didn't always get along. And so we would have some really big arguments with one another. Uh, and, you know, she'd call me names and I'd call her names. And so that just happened as we were growing up. But if somebody else called her a name, that wasn't going to fly with me even if I called her the very same name because she was my sister. And so when I talk about the church, you understand tonight that I'm a part of the church. Now, if somebody outside the church, if the world decides to start calling the churches church names, they, have to, they should be have to contend with all of us. Okay, so I'm not mad. I love the church. I, I'm not mad at the church, but I just want to talk. I want to be straight about a couple of things tonight. That's all right with you. So we're going to begin with just a couple of passages of Scripture, okay? We're going to let the Bible talk for itself for just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 15. The Lord's speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, Jer- chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul speaking. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace. Luke chapter 1, verse 44. The scripture says, For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped for joy, leaped in my womb for joy. That was um, Elizabeth speaking to, to Mary. And you know these verses. So as I read those three verses, they're talking about people in the womb, talking about people that were not yet born. Do we still believe that life begins at conception? I think the answer in this room is yes. Uh, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, it says, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, or that she has a miscarriage, and yet no mischief follow that she doesn't die, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, if, if the woman was injured and lost the baby, there was punishment. It was illegal for that to happen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, Thou shalt not kill. We know it means you shall not murder. It's not talking about killing somebody, murder. So I'm going to ask this question again. Do we still believe in the sanctity of life? And do we, do we believe that the murder of the unborn is wrong? Even if we call it a woman's right of choice or call it abortion, do we still believe that's wrong? Now we understand tonight that God is merciful, and he's forgiven, forgiving, and people make mistakes. They're ignorant sometimes. Sometimes they're not ignorant. But once they, they encounter him, that God is gracious and forgiving and brings restoration to people who've made mistakes. So this isn't judgmental about anyone who's had an abortion because God is able to restore. Okay, now let's talk about these verses. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. 
they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. Even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burning their lust toward one another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. So do we still believe those verses of Scripture? Amen. Is that something we believe? Or, or is the culture now the standard of life? Do, do, we, do we want to change the word to line up with the culture? Or do we want to, to affect the culture with the word of God? I mean, see, I, I believe we still believe that a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman is God's design for marriage. That's what God has said. Now, of course, we're never going to be, we're never going to be hateful. We're not going to hate people who disagree with us. But shouldn't we be true to the Word of God? Shouldn't we be true to it? Now, I, this is what I know. Many people shudder when these verses are read. Why? Well, because, I mean, we understand that in the world we live in, because of the woke generation and the cancel culture, and the politically correct people. I mean, people are afraid to talk based on the retribution that they may receive from that. They're afraid. I mean, they're, they're just afraid. Um, I told you the story, I, I think, of, of one time when I was a freshman in college at Hardin-Simmons University in 1973 in the fall. We had, I think it was the first sermon of, of a fall revival. It was at a chapel service there. And the preacher began to read from his Bible. And as he would read, like he was reading, we're at a Baptist university. And so he began to read about the baptism and the Holy Spirit speaking with tongues. And he would look up and he would say, I don't believe that. Do you? And he would rip the page out of the Bible and throw it on the ground. Okay, and then he would go to another passage about the gifts of the Spirit. And he would say, well, I don't believe that. Do you? And he would rip the page out. And I mean, the kids in, in the audience, we're talking about Baptist Bible students. I mean, they're just like... Oh my gosh, he's tearing the Bible. And he said, I don't, he's read some of the Old Testament. He said, I don't believe the Old Testament. He rips the whole Old Testament out. And so by the time he got finished, he had a Bible about, you know, this thing. And he said, now there's a Bible I can live with. And I thought about that this particular week. Maybe we'd feel more comfortable if we would tear these pages out of our Bibles. Because they're not popular. And they're counter to the culture in which we live. Might as well. We're not reading them anymore, and we're trying to uh, misappropriate them. He was just making a point. That's all he was doing. He was making a point. That's a good question. He was just making a point. It's interesting to me that when the Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand, the church made a little noise for a few years. I mean, we, we, I mean, preachers got up and they, they spoke of the rights of the unborn from the pulpits. They led marches of protest. And I mean, they, they, were, they, were, they were against it. But eventually, it just wasn't worth the cost of losing members and losing money. When the Supreme Court legalized homosexual marriage, the church made nary a sound. They didn't speak up because nobody wants the LGBTQ protesting in front of the church on Sunday morning. Nobody wants that chaos. No one wants that news on the media because that protest will cost members. It may shed a bad light on the church. 
My question is always this. What kind of members do we want? What kind of Christians do we want to have? When I used to do marriage counseling, I would ask them, well, is he a believer? Oh, he's a Christian. And I would always ask the question after that, what kind of Christian is he? And they would go, what? And I would say, have you ever looked at his checkbook? Have you ever asked about his previous relationships? And we began to discover that all Christians were the same. What kind of Christian do we want? Now, I'm not advocating that we preach on these subjects every week. But I am saying the church has lost her courage and her conviction to preach the truth. Okay? Compromise has come. Lukewarmness has come. That's what we've been talking about. I mean, many, I know many preachers that will never approach any scriptural subject that might offend anyone. They're just not going to do that. It's just not going to happen. I mean, they're not going to do it. The church's silence is deafening. And it's deadly. We've got to have the courage in this hour to lift up our voice in spite of the culture in which we live. More than ever before, the church needs to rise up. Today, churches are told not to meet. They're told what to preach because there are certain subjects that I just read that are considered hate speech. And the government brazenly becomes more totalitarian in its approach to the church in particular. I mean, the church is silent under the guise of we must submit to the government according to the Bible. And we just need to love everybody. After all, Jesus preached love and acceptance. Well, when you read the New Testament, it says that Jesus preached repentance and faith. Those are two things he preached. Pastors are afraid that if they lift up their voices... They'll jeopardize the little kingdoms they've built over the decades. They're afraid of that. I, I understand that. I mean, they've lost the willingness to take any kind of a stand that will bring a loss of people and a loss of money. And I get it. I mean, they've lived their lives building this ministry, and they don't want to lose it. They don't want to jeopardize what it is. They say, they say things like, well, th- that they can preach Jesus to more people if they can just stay out of the controversial subjects. Well, if you preach Jesus at all, it's controversial. Jesus was controversial. He said in Luke, he said, I didn't come to bring peace upon the earth, but division. Jesus is controversial. That subject is controversial. I mean, they're they're just afraid. And so a lukewarm message is being preached, and a lukewarm following is being created. Most of the church today, they have no idea what it means to be hot or cold because they've never seen it and they've never heard it. It's just been lukewarm. One preacher said, we can't bring up these subjects or they'll shut us down and silence us. Well, I'd submit to you that you're already silenced. It's already silent. Let me read you a couple of passages of scripture here. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. This is the one. And we're going to look at these for just a second. This is the introduction, introduction I want to say. We're still talking about a lukewarm church. The scripture Paul said, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually says this. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there's no power but of God and the powers that are ordained of, and, and the powers that are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? 
Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. For he is the minister of, of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. That's a passage that we hear a lot about today. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says something similar. It says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God. There you go. Brother Randy, that's what we're sent here is we're always supposed to submit to the government. That's what those verses say. Really. If that is true, listen, if it's true throughout the whole Bible, then we can create a rule. But if there's an exception, there's something we don't understand. Anytime we find an exception, we need to look further into it. The Bible will never contradict itself. If I don't understand it, I mean, if, if, I, if I think it's contradictory to itself, then I don't understand. And it's going to require more study on my part, more prayer on my part, more seeking of God on my part. If there's an exception, we cannot make a rule. So let me just point out a couple of exceptions. Is that okay? What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did they submit to the government? Obviously not. I mean, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. They refused to bow down to the king. They refused to bow down. They said, you know what? Here's the deal, king. If you, if you want to throw us in the furnace, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. But we trust God to deliver us. We will not bow to your idol. They resisted the government. What about Daniel? Well, they said you can't pray to anything but this. It was a different king by that time. You can't pray to anybody but this. And Daniel went to his house every day, threw open the windows, prayed to God for everybody to hear him. Went to the lion's den. He resisted the government. He disobeyed what the government said. Well, what about Peter? He wrote this. We read a passage in 1 Peter. He wrote it. Listen to what he says in Acts 5.29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. He spoke it against the authority of the day. He said, We've got to obey God, not men. What about Paul? He wrote the other passage we just read from. Well, if he always obeyed the government, why was he executed by Nero? He was executed by Nero because he disobeyed the government and he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go back to these two passages of scripture. Let me just clarify a couple of things. It says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers for there's no power but of God. The powers that are, that be are, are ordained of God. Whosoever there resists the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And notice this, and they that resist shall receive of themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works. What this just said is, is that the governments that are ordained of God are for good works. The ones that are not ordained of God are not for good works. You cannot tell me that God put Hitler in place. He would not murder people like Hitler did. There have been repressive governments throughout history that God did, or, did not ordain. But this is talking about governments that are, a, that, that are not a terror to good works, but are a terror to evil. That's what this is talking about. I mean, 
it says, for he, it says, for he, talking about the police or whoever's in authority, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. If, if it's for good, then he's the minister of God. If he's not for good, he's not the minister of God. Okay? So this, is, this is talking about something wholly, totally different than just submitting blindly to the government. When Peter says, says we're supposed to submit to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Listen, if the government is punishing people who are doing the right thing, people that are obeying the word of God, people that are standing for the word of God, that is not the government that is, that, that is, that is to be submitted to blindly. Man, see, we, we've got this thing. When a government aligns itself against the word, which is good, when a government aligns itself against the church, which is good, they're no longer the ministers of God. They've become evil. See, and so who determines if it's good or evil? The Word determines it. The Word brings the judgment. The Word brings the division. In, in our day, churches have to move beyond imitations of power and move in the real power of the Holy Spirit and to stand up and to speak up without fear. We're just so afraid that if somebody hears us say something that is right and good, we're afraid of what they will think. Today, churches have come out of lockdown. They're trying to pretend that it's just like it's always been. Nothing's happened. and They wonder why the crowd doesn't come back. It's because the church doesn't stand for anything. And, and, and they understand that. Let me just give you, I'm, I'm nearly through ranting here, but let me give you a couple more thoughts. Revelation chapter 13, 17. And you know this verse, you've heard it before. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Let me read it a different way. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had a mask that was required to enter the store, the place of business. <laughs> I'm telling you, society is being conditioned for the Antichrist. It's being conditioned. When the edict comes that says that we, that we have to have the mark, we have to have obey this, I'm going to tell you, that it's just conditioning us. The church needs to get its voice of power back. It needs to get the power of the Holy Ghost and the Word of God. We cannot be in, intimidated by anything. I mean, they're doing everything they can to get the church to sit down and shut up. Yeah. And it's time for the church to stand up and to speak up. I mean, in the pulpits, in the streets, wherever we can, to make sure that the will and word of God are known. I mean, the scripture says this in Philippians 1.28, and I've read this many times, it's one of my favorite verses, and do not for a moment be frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents and adversaries, for such constancy and fearlessness will be a clear sign, proof and seal to them of their impending destruction, but a sure token and evidence of your deliverance and salvation and that from God. We need to not be intimidated by it. It's time for the church to have a different hour. It's time for the church to no longer sit back and just take it. It's time for the church to be bold and to be strong and do what we're supposed to do. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I've given you authority and power to trample upon serpents and scorpions and physical and mental strength and ability over all the power that the enemy possesses and nothing shall in any way harm you. We need to know that we have the authority, that the church has the right to speak against these demon spirits between this, this oppressive uh, 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 
hierarchy in the, in the demonic realm that's settling over this nation right now. And we need to drive it out. And we need to, there needs to be clarity of, 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 of sight, clarity of hearing in the voice of people where the demon isn't doing the talking, but the church is doing the talking. We need to stand up. We need to speak up and do what we're supposed to do. We, we can't just, just fall in line with, with what the world is telling us to do. I'm not telling you to not wear a mask. I'm telling you to understand what the mask is about. Uh, you know, we need to do what we're supposed to do. And that's my introduction. Let me get to the passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And it goes right with what we're, what we're talking about. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of, crea- of the creation of God. I know thy works. This is Jesus. And I know, I've been there. I know it. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And we've been looking at this, and we've seen that this church in Laodicea is really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of the church today. I mean, the church has become rich. And it's become lukewarm. I mean, and we see that. And, and it's, many people have compared it with today's church over the years. This city, as we talked about, was by far the wealthiest of all the cities in the region. Perhaps in the whole Roman Empire, these people were rich. I mean, they, the church was rich. It was without persecution for the most part. I mean, everybody else was getting persecution. And the government was taking their stuff. But this church was growing, building giant buildings. I mean, they, they were doing, as, as far as anybody could tell, they were doing great. In the passage, the, Jesus comes and he tells the pastor what he has personally observed about this ministry. The weird thing is, they did not know anything about it. I mean, Jesus starts talking to him. He said, he said you don't even know. You do not know. And that's what happens when, we, when churches get lukewarm. They don't know they're lukewarm. They have no idea that they're lukewarm until something hot happens or until something cold comes along. All right, Jesus tells them, they had been lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. Remember, we talked about the pipes, the hot water that came from Hierapolis, and the cold water came from Colossae, and, and they all thought they were going to get hot and cold running water, and they took a sip of it, and it was nasty, and they spit it out. And Jesus said, that's what you are. You are awful tasting. He was disappointed with them. He found them distasteful, but he wants to bring them back to the place that he has designed for them, that they be once again hot with, with healing uh, in them and, and cold and be refreshing. Jesus is calling our church, the church of the United States of America, back to this place. Right. It's not too late for us if we will listen to him. We have to listen to what he said. Last time we talked about how they saw themselves versus how Jesus saw them. I mean, they saw themselves as the rich, 
the increase with goods and that they did it themselves and that they had need of nothing from anyone and so there was no need for anybody to help them and yet Jesus comes and, and, and he is, he's, he's telling them the truth. They had the latest and greatest of things. Apparently they were experiencing good services. They probably had bigger crowds coming. Man, it was all going good and, and they were moving and, but there was not a movement of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes and he called them wretched. And we talked last time that that means calloused, without feeling. They didn't feel it. He said they were miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And they didn't have a clue as to their spiritual condition. They had no idea what was going on. They were weak, lukewarm Christians, and they didn't even know because they had not seen what it was. Because it had been a long time since it happened. All right, Jesus said, I counsel thee. Basically, he said, let's get together and let's talk about this. We're going to talk about this. And then he said to buy of me. Jesus is the only answer. We talked about this last time. He's the only answer and the only way to either be hot or cold. We must connect to Jesus. We've got to be connected to him. We talked about how that gold represents true faith. The Bible, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to try you in the fire. He said, the gold is tried in the fire. And we saw in the, in the scripture last week that, 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 that faith is tried like gold. It's pure faith. It's real faith. And so I think that's as far as I got last time. I'm not sure. You know, I'm doing this with two groups, and I can't remember how far I get with each group. If you didn't get that far last time, you can go get the teaching from last week off, of the, off the Internet from the other group. But anyway, we're, we're going to go a little further here tonight. All right. First of all, let's, read, let's go to verse 18 here. Jesus said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Jesus isn't opposed to them being rich. The scripture, you can't find in the scripture where God hates his people being rich. He doesn't care. That's not his problem. But true rich is not rich in money. True rich is rich in God. All right? And it's okay. God will give you all the money that, that you want as long as he is the number one in your life. As long as we're rich in him and rich in faith. That's what we have to be. He said, he said you know what? I want you to be rich with the gold that you can only get from me. I tell you, there's real value in real faith that really accomplishes the will and the plan of God. I mean, there's something about doing what God called you to do that was impossible for you to do. When you lay your head on the pillow at night, there's something about that that's better than anything that money can ever buy. That kind of riches. And so these, the true riches are the result of faith. Jesus wants us to be that way. He said, I want you to buy white raiment that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness do not appear. Now, these people were extremely well-dressed people. They are very wealthy. I mean, I can't remember which group I said this to last time, but I'm telling you, when they went to when they went to church, it was it was a competition. I'm sure, you know how it used to. I remember growing up, it was a competition on Easter Sunday to see what they had. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody went to church in regular clothes except Easter, and it was like, look at me. I mean, I got the best stuff now. All right? I remember my mom. You know, when I was a little boy, I never got a new suit except at Easter, and I mean, I looked good for about oh, I don't know, three or four hours until I church was over and I got out in the dirt with it. I mean, this was a big deal. Clothes were a big deal to these people. But Jesus is saying, you know what? You're naked. The word naked means, it literally, it literally means to, to be stark naked. I mean, they were absolutely exposed. They should have been embarrassed, but they were not. They didn't even know they were naked. They had no idea. Kind of like the emperor's new clothes. I mean, they were just naked. But, of course, Jesus is the only one that saw them that way. But he understood, spiritually speaking, they were naked. 
He said, he's talking about clothing them. I love what he said to them. He said, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Jesus was concerned about the shame of it. He's the one who takes the shame. He didn't want everybody else to see their shame. He said, if you buy from me, make an exchange with me here. Make an exchange. I'll make sure you're not exposed to everybody else. I'll cover you up. I'll take care of you. You know, we're so afraid God's going to reveal our, 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 our deep, dark secrets. He's not going to do that to people. You know, God is for us. God is still for the church, even though the church is, 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 is in, my, in my mind, is, is, is very lukewarm. God wants the church to make it. He has a plan for his church. He wants to cover our nakedness. He wants to cover us and not expose our stark naked condition. If you've had a dream where you're in your underwear and all of a sudden you're on stage talking to people, it's like, oh my, you know, you're the most embarrassed you can ever be, you know, it's like, or walking down the sidewalk or whatever it is, that dream is, almost everybody has a dream like that at some point in their life. I mean, just imagine, Jesus won't let that happen to you if we make an exchange with him. If we make an exchange, the scripture says your sin will find you out, but if you come to Jesus, he takes care of it. He takes care of it, as long as we really come to him. I like when it says, he, he said, you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. I like what it says. Remember we said blind here in the verses before means to have no eyes. They didn't have any more eyes. He said the salve that we receive when we return to our love with him is the anointing. So we can see again. It's going to take the anointing. The church is going to have to have the anointing. You know, we hear about the anointing, but I tell you, we've not seen a lot of anointing. We need the anointing. We need the move of God where there's a real anointing. You know, that's how we're going to see. God will supernaturally help us see. These people were famous, as I said earlier in, in one of these messages, they were famous for this stuff called Phrygian powder, which was proven to be kind of a, 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 a healing salve. They mix it and make a salve out of it that was good for the healing of certain eye problems. And so they were famous for that. They knew what Jesus was talking about. He's, thinking, he's saying, you know what? You got this thing that natural eyes can see with? I can help you see. And it's going to take the anointing. The only cure for spiritual blindness is the anointing. I mean, we've got to let the Holy Ghost in. He's got to be a part of it. See, we have to make an exchange. Jesus said, buy of me. The word buy, we, I think we mentioned this last time, is the, the Greek word agorazo, which means to redeem, to go to market. But they understood exactly what Jesus was saying because this city had four marketplaces. And they were called the agoras, which comes from this Greek word agorazo. The marketplace. They had four of them. Nobody else had that many. They had 4,000 shops or however many they had. I mean, this place was, was, was full of marketing. But they, they needed to go to Jesus. He was the marketplace. He still is the marketplace. He's the only place to get our vision back. He's the only place to buy the gold. He's the only, he's the only place where we can buy the white raiment. He's the only one. The exchange that he's talking about is not money doesn't matter how much money we give to the church. The exchange is me for him. Giving myself away. Yielding myself to him. See, he must become master. I must lose myself and gain him. 
That's the only way. I tell you, the church, I tell you, if, if the church would just do that, we'd stand up to a lot of things that we're not standing up to today. Because we'd hear a voice that would say something. The Apostle Paul said, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The Apostle gave up everything. He was wealthy. He was a religious Pharisee. He had a great future with that church. He gave it all up to follow Jesus. And in that in that exchange, other than Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul is the most influential Christian of all time because he gave himself up. He, wasn't, he didn't want that anymore. And we need to get that in our hearts. Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Most of us don't like the first half of that particular verse. The, the, the verse literally starts with the word I. In the Greek, he says, I, as many as I love, I rebuke. I, as many as I. In other words, Jesus puts himself in the middle of the answer here. I, I mean, he's way personal about this. Jesus loves the church. He wants the church to make it. Nowhere in this passage did he say, I'm sending you all straight to hell. <laughs> Nowhere in the passage does he say, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to slap the fire out of you. <laughs> Never said that to these people. Not one time. I believe he is speaking to our churches today. I believe he's calling us. And he's saying, I, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Man, this is awesome to me. He said, as many as I love. It's interesting. The Greek word for love you would think would be agape here. But it's not. Agape is this unconditional God-only love. But the word is phileo which we, we get the word Philadelphia from, talking about brotherly love. But, but if we look at this word, among the many meanings of, of phileo, the word means to be delighted in. Jesus is telling them that even though he spewed them out of his mouth, he is still delighted in them, in who they are, and what they're called to do. He's saying, he's saying you know what? At one point, I, I hold you in repugnance because you taste so bad. I delight in you, and I want you to come back to the place that I've called you. I want you to be the church that I've called you to be. I want you to be healing. I want you to be refreshing. I want you to be the very thing I've said. He said, he said I still delight in you. I, as many as I delight in, as many as are mine, as many as I delight in, I rebuke and I chasten. Listen, if he delights in us, he's going to rebuke us, and he's going to chasten us. Now, that's not very good news, is it? Well, let's find out. What does the word rebuke mean? In the, in the Greek, the word means to admonish. But it also means to convict and convince. So what, what does convict mean? Well, if you go to court and you're on trial and you get convicted, well, that means you were found guilty. Okay, that's, It means to make a judgment of guilt. But that word literally means to make a judgment of guilt by bringing to light or exposure. People are convicted because things have been brought to light. Jesus' rebuke is to bring us from darkness into light. His plan is not condemnation, but to help us come to freedom. Conviction is the work of the Holy Ghost. 
He brings it to light. You see, the church doesn't know she's lukewarm. The church doesn't realize how bad we taste. Here's the problem. We taste bad to Jesus. We taste bad to the world. Wouldn't it be good just to be tasting good by somebody? And if we're going to pick one, why wouldn't we pick Jesus? Why would we, why would we crave the favor of the world? Why would we crave them to like it? We need to be so hot or so cold that they, whether they like it or not, they cannot ignore it. You know, I used to teach my kids, and I would tell them growing up, I said, you know what, you, you either need to be hot or cold, and you need to make sure that whatever happens, you're not ignored. You go through your life living for God. Do not let them ignore you. Let, they can love you and they can hate you, but don't let them ignore you. The church is being ignored in the whole process right now. And the, and the, the edict of, of, of totalitarian government is saying the church can and cannot do this and that. I'm going to tell you something. We are not slaves of their system. We, convicting brings us to light and exposes things so that we can make correction. The word convince, I love this word. It means to cause someone to believe firmly in the truth of something. That's what you do when you convince somebody. You cause them to firmly be convinced of it so they'll firmly believe it. Jesus' rebuke is to help us come into his light and to be firmly convinced that his word is true, that his promise is true, that his plan is still in effect for us. And that when we repent and we come to him, that it's, I mean, it's like it's all back to normal. Now, I get it. You know, you got to repent and repair. There are things you have to do when you, when, when, when you repent. you got to repair some things. But Jesus' rebuke is not a scolding. He didn't come and say, you know what? Y'all so bad, I'm going to slap you down now. He came and he said, he, he brought them into light. It's, a, it's, a, it's an effort to help us see what he sees and the opportunity to make the changes. He says, I'll rebuke you. I'll chasten you. This is one of the worst translations I've ever seen of this Greek word in the Bible. It doesn't mean chasten as chastise. The word here is it means to train, to discipline, or to educate. It is the very same word used in Titus 2.12. When the Bible speaks of grace, it says grace is teaching us that we may, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's the same word as teaching here. Jesus said when he, when, when he says, I'm going to chasten you, he said, I'm going to teach you. I want to teach you the right way. It's the same word as in Ephesians 6.4 where it says, And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's talking about teaching. It's talking about bringing people into truth. I mean, it has to do with strict discipline from time to time. But it's for training. It's for educating. It's for bringing us to the place we're supposed to be. Jesus said, those that I delight in, I'm going to bring the light to them, and I'm going to educate them and show them. There may be constraints in our lives from time to time by, the, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's teaching, but we, we know that it's so we can come to where we're supposed to be. I love him. He says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zealous is one of my favorite words in the Bible. But I got, we need to know something. Jesus cannot be zealous for us. He cannot repent for us. This is what we do. We must first see our condition. That's what the Holy Spirit will do in us. He will show it to us as he convinces, convicts and convinces us. And that will take being in the Word, being in prayer, being mindful of the Spirit. 
To be zealous, though, means to be hot or on fire with an ardent feeling in pursuit for something. In other words, it's the, it's the opposite of being passive. He says, be zealous. Be zealous. Jesus is saying that we have to have a passion with regard to his correcting our course. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry, Lord, and go back to the same old stuff. We've got to be passionate about the fire that goes in us. I mean, this church had grown calloused. They had lost their heat. They had lost their feeling. They needed a passion. They needed something that was worth it. I love it. He said, be, be zealous, be, be fired up about this. By the way, the apostle told Timothy to stir up the gift. He didn't say, I'll stir it up for you. He said, you stir it up. If we're going to be hot, we've got to stir the thing up. Repent. This is a great Greek word. The Greek word is metanoia. Meta means, meta means uh, change, and noia means mind. It's talking about changing your mind. It means to have a change of mind and attitude followed by a change in action. It has to do with sin and turning away from sin, but more than anything, it's about a new way of thinking. The only way to turn away from sin is to think right. To learn how to think right. I mean, it's talking about changing the way of thinking. The only way to change actions is to change thinking. As long as we think passively and think, you know, that we are subjects of, 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 of whatever the world wants to tell us we're subjects of, we will never change the way we act. And we'll just blindly go in line with what they tell us to do. We've got to change the way we think. I mean, if, if you meet a lost person, I think what you would want to preach to them is you need to be born again. When you preach to Christians, you need to preach, you need to renew your mind. Because most Christians that I meet don't think right. They think the way the world thinks. They think the way the world tells them to think. They think the way the news media tells them to think. They think the way, uh, uh, you know, society and, and, you know, all the things that are out there. I mean, we need to change the way we think. Romans 12, 2, you know this verse is, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. In order to find the will of God, we've got to think right. We've got to change the way we think. Ephesians 4.23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Listen, it's time for the church to repent. Begin to think right. We can't think right apart from the word. We have to have enough word in us in order to think right. We've got to have the word in us. The church needs to repent. And there's a very popular teaching out there right now. This is, oh, if you're saved and you're a Christian, you don't need to repent because you're already the righteousness of God. That is simply not true. Five times in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus tells Christians to repent. Including this church and four others, he tells Christians to repent. I mean, he's saying you need to change the way you think and change the way you act. I mean, it's crazy for us to think there's no, never a need for us to repent. There's, never, there's always a need when we, when, we, when, when, we, when we fall short of what God's called us to do. Christians need to be the first to repent, the first to turn to God. I mean, he didn't tell them to cry and self-debase themselves and to feel sorry and to feel bad. He said, repent. Change the way you're thinking so you can change the way you're acting. Turn away from this and go to that. That's what he's telling them. That's what repentance is. It's changing the way we think. Most Christians are, are, are covered up with what the Greek word metamelon. The Bible talks about the sorrow that comes from the Lord and the sorrow that comes from the world. And metamelon is that sorrow. The Greek word here means to have remorse, to feel bad. Well, 
we don't want to feel bad. That's not, that's not what we're after. We want to find the will of God. As long as I am self-debasing myself, I will never accomplish the plan of God. Jesus finds us valuable. He still has a lot for us to do. Okay, I'm not going to go, but just maybe two more minutes here. The next verse, and we're going to get to this next week in detail. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That is an amazing verse. He didn't say, if any man will open the door, I'm going to come in and whoop them because they hadn't been good. He said, if any man open the door and knock, we're going to have a banquet together. If anybody will come in. I mean, he didn't tell them that he's going to make them cry, make them feel bad, and beat them into correction. But he said, we're going to have a feast. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. I pray, God, that, that you put into us a different kind of fiber. A fiber that says, God, whatever you say, we will do. However you say, we will do and be. God, we want to be the church of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be the puppet and the pawn of government or the devil or anything else. Jesus, we declare tonight, you alone are Lord. You alone are Master. Jesus, we come to you, and you alone are the one we'll bow the knee to. Jesus, we want you in our midst. Jesus, we want you to bring a move of God in us that is, that is like no other time in history in this nation. We believe you've called the, the United States as your nation. Lord, we're not the Jews, but we are certainly a Gentile nation founded on principles of following God. And Father, in Jesus' name, we call our country, we call our churches back to God back to the place of fire and enthusiasm for the things of God. Lord, we give you thanks tonight and honor in Jesus' name. We pray, amen.